This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is Campaign Catch-Up, bringing you the top news and analysis from the 2022 federal election. It's Thursday, the 5th of May. Today, Defence and Foreign Affairs correspondent Daniel Hurst joins me to discuss how both major parties plan to keep Australia safe. But first, here's what happened today. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare has again spoken out in Parliament, suggesting Australia had threatened to invade his country by describing a possible China military base there as Australia's red line. Prime Minister Scott Morrison rejected this. He was in Parramatta in Sydney today, where he found himself under pressure on Australia's relationship with Solomon Islands yet again. You've spoken about a red line with the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. Do you now admit that your rhetoric on the region for a domestic audience has massively inflamed the situation and potentially damaged irrevocably your relationship with Manasseh Sogavare? No. The PM hasn't spoken to Sogavare since the election began three weeks ago. In other words, not since Solomon Islands signed its security pact with China and the war of words between the leaders began. But he insisted that Australia remained Solomon Islands' primary security partner and said he looked forward to talking with Pacific leaders in future about the risk its security pact with China presented to the region. What's stopping you picking up the phone and speaking leader to leader to de-escalate this? I can tell you very clearly that I am following very carefully the advice that I get from our security intelligence agencies in how we are responsibly managing the issues in relation to this matter. The fact that the Prime Minister hasn't picked up the phone to Prime Minister Sogavare says an enormous amount about what is needed in terms of that relationship. Opposition leader Anthony Albanese was at the Smart Energy Council Expo in Sydney CBD, where he was asked how a Labor government would repair Australia's relationship with Solomon Islands. It's about increased aid. It's about dealing with climate change, including hosting a COP along with the Pacific Island nations. It's about people-to-people relations, including parliamentary visits. It's about making sure uh, that we have a migration program that allows people from the Pacific to settle here. The press pack, hoping Anthony Albanese would repeat his gaffe on the unemployment rate from the first week of the campaign, pressed him to list all six points of Labor's plan to fix the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mr Albanese, what are the other five points, Mr Albanese? We we, we will put people... Putting people... We will put people. We will put people at the centre of the NDIS. Mark. Albanese later referred to notes provided by his advisers to answer the question. The NDIS is growing exponentially and becoming increasingly expensive to run. Both parties have committed to continue funding the scheme if elected. Labor's vowed to stop cuts to it, and the coalition said it will run the program responsibly despite Australia's structural deficit. Coming up, Daniel Hurst joins me to discuss how both major parties plan to defend Australia. Hey, Dan. Hi, Jane. So, Dan, you attended the National Press Club debate on defence today in Canberra. What did you make of both Brendan O'Connor and Peter Dutton's performance today? Well, there were certainly some fireworks as it went on with questioning. The most interesting exchange was probably when they got to ask each other a question. Brendan O'Connor asked Peter Dutton whether he regretted 
saying that it would be inconceivable Australia would not join with the US to defend Taiwan. And Dutton's answer was basically no. He said that we're a good ally to the US and it would be in Australia's interest, which is, you know, goes a bit beyond the strategic ambiguity we've spoken about before. Uh, and Dutton really tried to ramp up the pressure on O'Connor over you know, asylum seeker boat arrivals during the last Gillard-Rudd governments. Um, he actually suggested that O'Connor was personally responsible while sitting around the National Security Committee table for the arrival of some 12,000 people and 184 boats. And Dutton asked, what do you say to the men and women of the Australian Navy who are still suffering PTSD today from having pulled those bodies from the water of women and children who drowned at sea, mm. which is really quite a stark question. And O'Connor essentially said he had great respect for customs and naval personnel. He recalled meeting with the administrator of Christmas Island and having to set up a temporary morgue on that island. And so he said he privately met those personnel and thanked them for their brave actions. And it was actually those sorts of experiences that led O'Connor to push within Labor for the party to have a more deterrent-focused approach to asylum seeker policy. So that gave us quite an interesting insight into that period and what was going on within the Labor government. Well, the debate today was all about which minister could best handle the defence portfolio going forward. But of course, there are some key issues that will confront whoever wins the election. So what are some of them, Dan? Yeah, well, there are substantial challenges within defence, but the big picture in terms of the strategic challenges that Australia sees from China and, and, and Russia and others, this is shared by both major parties, despite what Peter Dutton might have you believe. Basically, Labor has backed the $270 billion of extra capability spending over the next decade. They say that they'll spend at least 2% of GDP on defence. But regardless of who wins the election, a major thing in the intray for the defence minister will be what to do about the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarines. There's an 18-month study period currently underway. It's very unclear at this stage exactly the timeline for when the first boats will arrive. Uh, the late 2030s is what uh, Scott Morrison originally said. Now, Dutton has said at the debate today that he expects it could be delivered substantially sooner. Both sides have not really made a firm commitment about domestic construction of them. They've sort of suggested that that's what they want to do and that's what they hope they can do. But it will be a matter for the next Defence Minister and the government to work out what's realistic. Interestingly, in the debate today, somebody asked both Peter Dutton and his defence shadow, Brennan O'Connor, if you got a advice saying that the first submarine could be ready five years sooner if you acquired it off the shelf rather than building it in Australia, what would you do? And they both uh, sort of suggested that there's no sort of, there's a lot of capacity constraints overseas. The US and the UK are also building up their fleets. So there's not really an easy off the shelf option. There's also the issue of the capability gap while we're waiting for the new submarines to be ready. That's another big issue. And of course, there's a major defence projects, including the frigates, another sort of troubled project, which there's no suggestion that it will be cancelled, but it is a major issue for whoever becomes defence minister to sort of get that project back on track and really deliver the capability that both sides say Australia needs. As you say, Dan, it sounds like both sides are largely bipartisan on this, you know, they're on the same page about how to approach these big challenges facing defence. Are there any key differences between the two parties? 
I guess, I guess Labor's argument has been, you know, you're all talk, let's actually get this capability off the ground. Um, there are some minor projects like the government, it turns out, scrapped a program for armed drones, which would actually be available quite soon. And so Labor has said that they would review that, that they'd be looking at options like that and also looking at whether they might be able to fit Tomahawk missiles to the existing Collins-class submarines to sort of give it an extra, you know, boost its capability while we're waiting for the next submarines. But there's not really any firm pledges on those things because, you know, rightly the opposition says they can't actually make defence capability decisions without the advice that they would get within government. Mm -hmm. Now, at this debate, Peter Dutton repeated a claim that he's made previously that... There's no doubt uh, in my mind uh, that the Chinese Communist Party would like to see a change of government at the 21 May election. No question at all. That's despite being warned previously against politicising this issue. What did you think when you heard that? Well, I mean, it's not surprising, I suppose, that Minister Dutton has not said that he was wrong. Um, He said that in his mind, he has no doubts what he said was true. And he alluded to possible things that he might have read intelligence-wise, but uh, obviously is not able to disclose. These things are not provable one way or the other if you're relying on intelligence that's not available to the public. But as you mentioned, the head of ASIO a few months ago said that it was not helpful to its operations to be weaponising national security. And we know that foreign interference is a risk affecting all political parties. Um, At the debate today, Brendan O'Connor actually said that Peter Dutton's line of argument is a conspiracy theory. And so I guess Labor is starting to get a bit more open in pushing back at this sort of claim. Mm. Peter Dutton also followed up that attack with a claim that Labor's general approach to soft diplomacy or, you know, as he as he called it, the charm offensive, was really not the best approach to deal with an aggressive threat like China. That sort of rhetoric, regardless of whether or not it's helpful or, or valuable in this debate, I wonder if if it, you know, this close to an election, it could actually sway some votes. Possibly. If, if, if people are concerned about national security and they see the government as being tough, then that could sway things in the government's favour. Dutton did say that Penny Wog had suggested she could go to Beijing and have a charm offensive. And I mean, he used some language that was talking about President Xi Jinping laughing at Penny Wong and, you know, dear friend, that sort of thing. That's not what Penny Wong has said. She hasn't said that she would go to Beijing and suddenly everything would be fixed. She has said that there are some some substantial structural issues in the relationship that will have to be managed. What she has said is that it shouldn't be a matter of day-to-day partisan politics, that there should be a sort of unified Australian position and that Australia's strength comes from having that shared position and being able to express that and that it wouldn't change no matter who's in government in Canberra. So that sort of that was a little misleading, I would mm. say. And so for voters interested in national security and in defence issues, heading to the polls in just a few weeks' time, what are the sorts of things that you think they should keep in mind? But it it sort of comes down to trust, I suppose. The coalition's argument has been that if you do want to see an increase in defence spending, if you do want to see an increase in defence personnel, that they've got a record of increasing that funding. And Labor's message to voters who are concerned on that front is, don't worry, times have changed. Those cuts that were made to defence more than a decade ago were in a different time. You know, it was before Xi Jinping actually came to power. And it was a year before, for example, Tony Abbott actually invited Xi to speak at the Australian Parliament. So their message is basically times have changed, but we would do things in a bit more diplomatically nuanced way. And so 
there's not substantial differences on defence. Labor had sought to minimise those differences. They wanted to fight the campaign on things like aged care, health, Medicare, education and, and Morrison's own personal brand and his own record. But given the Solomon Islands deal emerged during the campaign, that's been weaponised in a sense to, to undermine the coalition's message. But we'll find out on the 21st of May. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. No worries, Jane. That's your campaign catch-up for today. And if you're wondering what could happen if we get a hung parliament at this election, you should check out tomorrow's full story. It's our newsroom edition featuring editor Lenore Taylor and head of news Mike Tisher. They'll discuss this argument that we've been hearing from the major parties, that voting for independent candidates would lead to a hung parliament and ultimately be bad for democracy. For at least some of the um, members of the government or in the major parties and some commentators, they look at that at that steady decline and they think, no, the problem can't be with the parties. It can't be with what the parties are doing. The problem must be the voters and the independent and minor parties that the voters are turning to. I just find that kind of astounding conclusion to draw from a historical trend that stark. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.